0: Welcome to the Winter Palace, I'm your host Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the pod, I am thrilled to say that we have the original Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, on the podcast today. We're going to talk about Ron's new novel, Brutus, when he wrote it, how long ago that was, how it ended up getting published, the plot, but we're not going to give away all the plot, where you can get a copy, and how you can get an autographed copy directly from Ron. We're also going to talk about the passing of Bullet Bob Armstrong, who died just recently, We're going to talk about how Ron uh, first booked him back in the mid-70s in Knoxville, how Bob became a partner in the Continental Territory with Ron and some of the other Welch family, some of the great angles that Bob was involved in with Ron, and more. We're also going to talk about Ron's career in hockey, how that started, the innovations he brought to the sport, and so much more. We're also going to talk about, of all things, mustaches in wrestling, and how that denotes whether or not a guy is a heel. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. I'm beyond thrilled to have our guest make his debut on the pod today. Part of the biggest dynasty in American wrestling history, he's worn many hats over the years, both in pro wrestling but also in hockey, and now he is an accomplished author. To talk about his novel and so much more, I'm very happy to welcome to the show the original Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. How's it going, Ron?
1: Uh, It's going great, Mark. Uh, Glad to be on your show.
0: It's Uh, funny, uh, I say say that because... I think we were talking beforehand, and I grew up in a part of the country that didn't see any of your companies, and so I think the first time I got to see any of the Fullers on TV on a on a weekly basis was in Memphis, and that's when uh, that's when Robert was there. So for the longest time, I always just assumed that that your brother was the Tennessee stud because I don't think <laughs> I actually I don't think I got to see you in action until I became a tape trader years later.
1: Yeah, uh, I think he assumed he was the Tennessee stud, too. <laughs> so my brother and I, we we get a lot of laughs about the, the Tennessee stud. But uh, yeah, yeah, he was there. His career went a lot longer than mine. I got out uh, when I saw wrestling was about to go under the wrestling type of wrestling we knew anyway, for many, many years. And my family, my father, my grandfather, it was all changing, and you know i i, I could kind of tell you know this is this is maybe not where i need to be in the future and and i was lucky to get into another sport and make have some success there too
0: and uh the reason the main reason that we're having you on and hopefully it's the first of of many times that you'll be on the pod over the years but uh your novel brutus just came out a few weeks ago and i did not realize until i heard you talking about it on uh coronet show a couple weeks ago was that this is not a this is not a new it's a new book but this is not a new project so why don't you tell everyone just how long uh brutus has been around for
1: oh gosh man i'm almost embarrassed you know when i talk about it uh uh i I, after i after i sold my last hockey team and i spent uh, three years living in the florida keys I moved back to Knoxville, Tennessee, not too far from the Smoky Mountain National Park. And I had a dream one night in 1988 about uh, a lion getting loose in the park. And I got up the next morning and decided I'm going to try to write a book. You know, I'd done pretty much everything else. I said, I'm just going to write this book. You know, I think this may be a good story. I'd see where it goes. And uh, so I finished the book around uh, 2000, the year 2000. I spent two years working on it. And, and then uh, and I found myself a, uh, an agent uh, Boston, uh, Cambridge Literary Agency in Boston, and, you know, and I thought I was well on my way to getting the book published and, and, and it taken off, and, and uh, it just never really happened. The agent never really uh, followed through, and he never was able to, to get it uh, out there where it should be. And so I, uh, I, I, then I got interested. Uh, I had uh, ADT came to me I had an opportunity to get myself a dealership with ADT security company and I decided you know this you know security was going to be big I could see it coming you know it was it was just really turning around and uh, so I I decided you know I'm going to go with ADT and I took that book and I stuffed it in the drawer uh, in my bedroom for for 20 years just about to be honest with you and about uh, 19 years later, I pulled it out one day, and I said, well, why don't I do something with this? And uh, and then a couple of fortunate things happened. I had a a fan of mine who uh, listened to the stud cast, my super stud cast, and, uh, and I found out he was a writer, and he was in that same genre as what uh, Brutus is in, and I got in touch with him, and You know, and I asked him questions, and he had he had five books out already, and he said, "Send me your book," and I sent it to him, and he read it, and and you know, got back to me, and he said, "Cheese, Ron, you you got to do this. You know, this is a hell of a book. You got to finish this." So he helped me uh, to 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 sharpen it up, and to and to get the concept back going again, and to get my juices flowing about it again, and and uh, so now. We went ahead and self-published it We're on Amazon, and uh, it's it seems like it's taken off, Mark. I mean, uh, you know, you never know when you write a book whether you got something or whether you don't. It's kind of like going into a new business. Are you going to be a success? Are you going to fail? But, uh, you know, uh, I, it looks like that uh, I maybe have something. <laughs> I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to go.
0: Well, I mean, we'll get into the, the plot and stuff for a second, but... Uh, One of the things that I wrote in my review is that I could, as I was reading it, I could easily visualize it. And, you know, it certainly seems very, very filmable that, you know, I said that even though this book is set, like you said, you wrote it 20 years ago and it's set in the present. But when I was reading it, I was imagining it more as being set like in the 60s. I don't know why. But like I could see it being said in the '60s or '70s, like I said, I could see. I kept imagining a guy like George C. Scott playing. Playing the caretaker, you know that—that's just the kind of guy that I imagined, and I imagined, you know, young Psycho era Anthony Perkins as as Jed, and, and you know, a couple other people. So it's definitely it seems like it's something I could easily see as a movie.
1: Yeah, well, you know. When I was writing it, actually, when I when I'd had the dream and I woke up the next day, I was thinking more movie than book. You know, I was like, "Wow, what a movie that would be!" You know, uh, but uh, you know, the, it's kind of a timeless story. I guess you know, it could be in the '60s, it could be uh, in the '90s, uh, the 1990s, uh, it, present day. You know, it's a it's a story that's that's uh, you know could could this could the good thing I think about the Brutus is the fact that it uh, it's a, it's fiction but it's a possible fiction. I mean it could happen. Uh a, a lion could definitely get loose uh in a wreck of some kind and uh get in the neighborhood or wherever he gets lost. But uh when you think about getting lost in that national park uh, that's one of the but that would be one of the premier and one of the most difficult places on earth to to capture or kill a lion, to find him in that in that park. It's a it's a massive park.
0: Yeah, I should say uh, for people who haven't heard you talk about it before, ba- the basic plot, and this is very much the basic plot, is that um, a guy who works for the Knoxville Zoo uh, and ended up uh, capturing a hunting down a lion in Africa, bringing it back to the Knoxville Zoo. And eventually, a series of things happen that we won't give away here because we want people to read the book. But uh, the lion's up being transported from the Knoxville Zoo to the Charlotte Zoo. And while it's being transported, there's a landslide going through the mountains and the lion escapes into the national park. And then people have to hunt down the lion before it kills again because... This is not only a man-eating lion, this is perhaps the world's greatest man-eating lion.
1: Yes, yes, and, and actually, uh, supposedly the world's largest lion, the largest lion ever in captivity. He's not just a man-eater, he's a massive lion, he's huge. So, you know, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a struggle, you know, as you, as you would imagine. That for a lot of people, uh, you know, Smoky Mountain National Park is the most visited national park in America. And uh, people that go there, uh, if they think about being up there in those mountains and a lion being loose and them not knowing where he's at, <laughs> that's a, it's kind of like Jaws in a way uh, because, uh, you know, it's just instead of Jaws makes us afraid to go into the ocean and uh, and Brutus is liable to make people afraid to go into the mountains again because <laughs> you know? uh, it's, it's a great place for a lion to get loose for sure.
0: I will say, as somebody who lives very much in the country, it's easy to imagine, because we've had scenarios in the past where we've had bears. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a bear that somehow ended up in Delaware. I don't remember how, but or just wild. But the bear basically started making its way across rural Maryland cuz i mean cuz uh, up in the northeast corner where i'm from you know it's it's very rural and very country and you know i'm sure i'm sure you know what that's like where oh, yeah. Yeah. you know you can easily have an animal traipsing through an entire county or couple counties for you know 40 50 miles and never be seen because of if it knows what it's doing so i can easily imagine how being in a giant national park you know one small animal, even if it is the world's biggest lion, could easily evade capture, especially if it's a predator natural lion, as as Bruce appears to be. That he you know, he's like he's not just a man eater, but he's 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 a cunning man eater.
1: Yes, 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 and that and that's the whole concept with him is uh he's been captured once. Uh, he got captured uh, on on a Kilimanjaro in Kibo one of the Kilimanjaro mountains and uh, you know uh, and he's he's very he's cunning he's been captured once and he's smart this time he's it's like uh, I'm not going to let it happen to me again they're not going to ever get me again once he gets out of that zoo he then he's he's just uh, he's in an element where he is going to just be totally dangerous extremely dangerous out there and uh, and he he's he really takes he takes quite a few people down before before they're able to able to to get it done but uh you know and uh and, I, and it this 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 book uh, it actually has characters from three continents they're critical characters from three different continents uh, it's got an Australian family. That uh, is an Australian policeman that's, uh, you know, that has tracked down and worked undercover and got the mafia guy, head mafia guy. And so he has to be out, moved out of the country in order to save him and his family. And he ends up in Knoxville, Tennessee, of all places, where he's trying to hide out. And he becomes a major character in it. And, uh, and the, the African guy uh, that helps uh, catch the lion. Uh, name is natu natu is a is a critical character because you know we don't know anything in this country about tracking lines you know so when this lines gets loose everybody's out there tracking them with coon dogs and whatever you know techniques that we have for tracking things animals or whatever but uh you know tracking a lion is a whole different ball game and so natu has to come from africa they got to have the guy that got him the last time come and get him again and uh so it's a it's a pretty intricate story and then there's a whole lot of things you know uh you and i talked earlier uh there's a lot of things that uh that we you didn't say in your review uh this book has a little bit of everything in it <laughs> you know it's kind of it's got it's 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 a uh, it's a it's a pretty intricate story and uh and it could happen. I think that's the part I like the most about it is is it could happen.
0: Well, it's funny too, because the way the book is structured, some of the like the uh the Australian policeman, it's funny that like the book starts off focusing on him and you're like, okay and then it jumps to this other part and then you really don't see him again for a good while until you know, things happen that involve the police and he just happens to be the the detective that gets involved in the case, and so you're like, oh, that's right, this guy, this guy that I remember like 200 pages ago, you know, is back in the story. And sort of the the same with the African hunter, where you know he, you see him catch the lion in the beginning, and then you know it's not until they need him to come to America later that he pops back in. And so it's like, oh yeah. And then you know, like you said, you have the uh, the policeman's family who play an integral part in the story. And, you know, there's a few – there's uh, the um, the zookeeper's nephew is an important character that we haven't really talked about, but is definitely crucial to the story. There's uh, a TV – there's an ambitious TV reporter who uh, is, ha- has a, a big role. So, um, you know, you balance you balanced a lot of characters weaving them in and out and not really – Exhausting them and you know, sort of, uh, you know, there, I you know, they flow in and out of the story in in a really well done way.
1: Well, I appreciate that, yeah, you know, and I and I did, uh, and it's really funny when you write a book, uh, and that being the first book and the only book I've ever written, uh, you 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 think you sit down and you're going to go, okay, well, here's where I'm going to go with this, and and I see and I see how I'm going to get there. But when I wrote this book it, it after a while it it kind of took control of me rather than me taking control of it it started I started writing things like I got to thinking at the end of the night I would spend the night up all night and and I would think why why did I do that? Where is this thing going you know <laughs> so and it just kept like growing like a, you know uh like a story that's out of control almost and and it just came up with a lot of different great characters, and uh, and it just kind of fit together very well. By the time it gets to the end of it, I think people will be, uh, and it's got a pretty decent ending, too, a pretty darn exciting ending to it, too, so uh, and I'm, I'm happy with it, um, and, and I'm really happy that it's being so well accepted. I mean, I've got I've got uh, Amazon uh, reviews on Amazon. If people want to go there and look. Amazon uh, under Brutus or Ron Fuller Welch, and uh, every 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 review I've ever gotten so far is all five stars. I mean, everybody just loves it, and and uh, obviously makes me feel good because, like I said earlier, you don't know whether you got something that's going to be good or you or not, and those reviews kind of help people decide whether they want to read it. And in my case, it makes me decide that, hey, you did all right, Ron. (laughs) They're going to like it, you know.
0: One of the things I was going to say when you talked about the plot is sometimes you'll hear, especially mystery writers, talk about how they have the, although they have the plot ahead of time, that they basically have to map out the entire story. And I've seen things where authors have constructed one of those giant, like, police web things where you've got pictures and strings attached everywhere to know what goes where. So this is almost like that kind of story where it's, it's I, I sort of hate to do this, but it's, it's intricately plotted. Like it's almost your, I mean, as an, as an author, you're, you're booking this story and you've got to know how to make it flow correctly. You know, when to put in the high spots you know when to let things low and then you build to your finish so in a way i i jokingly put this in the in the review i said that you traded one pencil in for another
1: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah kind of like the wrestling booker and uh you know and this thing uh you you've got a different type of pencil that's for sure and uh and it's a little different deal but it, it the book is kind of similar to wrestling in some ways. You know, when you build characters uh, as a booker in a territory, uh, you want a lot of different characters, and and you want them to uh, have their own personality and their own style. And uh, that's kind of what I try to do here. There's a lot of key characters in this in this book, and and they all are they're they're very much different than, uh and D. De- and sometimes you never know with uh, with these characters whether they're a heel or a baby face and they kind of jump back and forth sometimes too just makes it even harder to to uh, to keep up with but uh, you know it I think it it, it makes the character uh, uh, more interesting if uh, by doing it that way
0: and you've got the lion who is a force of nature who is probably probably the equivalent if we look over your history he's probably. He's probably like the stomper, you know, he's a force in nature that, you know, you just try and control.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he is the story and then, you know, and I kind of write him like that too. Uh, I, I kind of follow everything he does, especially once he gets loose in the park, uh, from a, almost a lion's mindset you know i mean uh, and you as you said earlier he's a cunning lion i mean he's a he knows where he wants to go and he knows what he wants to do and boy he's an efficient killer that's for sure and uh so uh, it's a it's 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 a very different story uh, you know'm I'm, I'm real happy with it i've created something that i don't know any story that's ever been written that's like it
0: yeah, and like you said, people can get it from Amazon. They can also order from your website directly at tinstud.com if they want to get an autographed copy. Yes,
1: yes, uh, I do have a website, and I uh, do uh, Studcast and Super Studcast, and you know my family's uh, got a uh, hundred years of history in the wrestling business, and and so on my uh, on my website, other than just wrestling stuff, I have the book there itself, and. And uh, yeah, they can go to tnstud.com and just uh, click on Stud Store and first item that comes up, and and one of them is a is an autograph copy, and and uh, and not only just autograph it and put my name on it, I like to send a little message to people that that uh, buy those and, uh, and thanking them and uh, you know nice little things to say, and and uh, so it's a. Yeah, and, and I really like uh, the communicating, uh, and I, just like this, Mark, as an example, you know, I like talking about it. Uh, I like talking to the people that have read it. I love to have conversations with people that have read it because, you know, it it it, it lights me up. <laughs> you know, i like, wow, you really got it. Hey, you you liked it? Oh, and they're all go, well, of course I liked it. You know, so. Uh, it's a it's it's a good experience. I've never been an author, done a whole lot of things in my life, but this one is something totally different and, and I'm enjoying it.
0: That's good. Um we had been talking we've been talking for a little while about scheduling this to talk about the book and all the other stuff, and unfortunately, you know, we had some sad news the other day um that why we're actually recording this at a different time than we had originally planned um because you have to uh take a trip unfortunately because we just recently a few days ago um lost one of your best friends in wrestling uh a former partner of yours too and that is of course the great uh bullet bob armstrong who passed away
1: yeah yeah horrible horrible deal and Bob had bone cancer and, uh, for a couple of years and he's 80 years old and he didn't want to uh, go through the chemo and all that stuff. And, you know, and it, uh, it took a long time to get him. Uh, Bob was just a tremendously strong person, not just in body, but in spirit. And, uh, and, you know, and it, it finally did get him and, uh, yeah, and, and I'm going to his funeral soon here and, you know, it kind of made us, uh, have to move things around a little bit, uh. But uh, he's a just a, a tremendous person, and I can't say enough about Bob Armstrong. Uh, and uh, like I said, well, probably my 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 best wrestling friend I ever had.
0: And you two certainly had uh, on the studcast where we where we currently are in August of 2020. Um, you're talking about 1976 in Knoxville, and um. Bob had just recently come to Knoxville from the for, for the first time, I think, as a as a regular um, feuding with uh, with Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto and getting burned. So that basically from that 76. So you guys w- worked off and on with each other for like a good te- uh, 15 years almost.
1: Yeah. jeez um, yeah, at least 12 years. Yeah. Um. Uh, Up to 1988, well, actually, we worked all the way, mostly through 88, with USA wrestling. So, yeah, for for at least 12, maybe uh, 13 years, uh, just very, very close friends. Uh, He came to wrestle for me in 1976. Uh, I had met him uh, when I was a junior in high school in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was just starting as a rookie in 1976, I mean, 1965. And, uh, and just uh, was a tremendous-looking young wrestler, fantastic. Everybody knew he was going to be one of the best. And uh, then, you know, I finally get him in my company, my first wrestling company, Southeastern. that was in Knoxville. And he comes in in 1976. He stays with me a couple of months. He comes in. And uh, we have an agreement. Uh, he says, Ron, I just want to see what you're doing. I want to see how the how the territory is. I want to see your talent. I want to see how guys get along. Uh, the, when you're a wrestler, you want to be working in a territory that has good dressing room uh, vibes. You know, there's a lot of big territories, uh, big companies, that the vibe in the dressing room is just horrible. You don't want to even go to work. But uh, I tried to run companies that, were really guys really enjoyed working, and they made good money. they were home early every night, which was most unusual for wrestling territories and you know, and Bob got into that and that two months that he was there, he left and he was gone for about four months. He came back in nineteen seventy seven and he basically never left again. <laughs> he just stayed with me all the way through knoxville uh that which ended in about nineteen seventy nine and then we opened uh We went south into Pensacola and started another territory down there, southeastern Pensacola. And it was just a monster territory, tremendous territory. And Bob, uh, I made him a partner uh, in in the company with me. Uh, And I had family members that were involved in the company, too, that I made partners. But he was the only guy I ever put in the business with me. And I really loved him, man. He was just a trem- and a tremendous wrestling talent. For people up north that never, don't know who we're talking about. Wow, you don't know what you missed. I mean, he he would have he could have gone anywhere he wanted to and been a Hall of Famer. Well he was a WWE Hall of Famer simply because his sons basically got involved in that organization and that company. But had Bob Armstrong go gone there in uh in his heyday uh, he would have been the biggest star ever there, probably.
0: And, of course, the interesting thing is, as you said, your best friend in wrestling, yet you two feuded for the longest time, back and forth, and uh, people may always think of Bob as a baby face, but Bob turned heel on you in 1982 in arguably the m- most famous angle that you guys did in Southeastern Continental. Um, which people can, can see on YouTube if they want, want to search it out. So how exactly did Bob's heel turn come about? Was it your idea? Was it his idea to finally be a heel? How did, how did that come about?
1: Well, it was kind of my idea, and, uh, and, and I, de- I kind of came up with the idea because Bob has, has four sons, okay, and uh, one of them was already wrestling. Uh, his name was Brad, who was a fantastic young wrestler. Uh, And I knew he was destined for stardom, no doubt about it. He had another three sons coming along, uh, Scott and Steve, uh, pretty close to the same age, and then Brian Armstrong, which fans of WWE will know Brian Armstrong uh, from that era into the 2000s. So anyway, uh, you know, uh, he had all those sons coming along. I have a brother that wrestles, Robert Fuller, who wrestled. He's managed in WWE. WCW is Colonel Parker, he's managing WWE. There's Tennessee Lee. I mean, uh, you know, we we've been in the business for gosh since the 70, 1970. And uh, I have a cousin named Jimmy Golden. I have another cousin named Roy Lee Welch. So we had these two families involved in the same company. And uh, Bob had always been a baby face, and, and I just uh, I just kind of could see the picture. And I said, you know, Bob, and I had been healed already once when we down there in Pensacola, and Bob was the baby face. And, and I said, you know, and then I had turned baby face, and we were traveling together. And I just sat with him one night and said, Bob, I think what we need to do is turn you healed, man. And, you know, and he had never been healed. Uh, but he he liked the idea simply because he had never done it, and you know, and when you're a wrestler, you want to do something different, you know you don't want to just be the same character all the time, and he really got into it, and he was a marvelous heel, my gosh he just he not he didn't change his body, but he changed everything else about him he He's always had a great build uh he's ne he's you know he didn't smoke uh, he didn't do third things like that, uh, you know, uh, he went crazy. Once he became a heel, he, he did exactly what a heel would do. I mean, he'd been a good guy and a nice guy, and all of a sudden he grew himself a mustache. He put a earring in his ear. He started smoking cigarettes on interviews. I mean, he just became a jerk, a bona fide jerk, and people hated him. It got to where they really, really hated him, and, you know, it just it worked out great. So basically... Uh, later on, he, he after he turned heel, he's going to turn back babyface. Me and him are going to be partners uh, against Arn Anderson and Jerry Stubbs, uh, and run a long program. And then I'm going to turn on him again, and uh, go back heel. And my brother's going to turn heel. My cousin Jimmy's going to turn heel. And then we had probably one of the longest running feuds in the history of wrestling: the Armstrongs against the Fullers and, and the Welches and. You know, it just business was just unbelievable. We sold out everywhere we went, and you know, his uh, it was it worked out good for us. Uh, it was and it was a great experience. His boys were wonderful to work with. Uh, Bob was always wonderful to work with, and they loved us, and they loved the way we worked, and and it was that old Southern style, scratching and digging, and uh, you know, uh, crazy finishes and uh, wild stuff. Uh, Storyline, uh, uh, Gordon Soley, commentator. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a big six thousand, seven thousand arena, uh, arena full of people doing television there, and uh, it was a it was a class act, big time product for wrestling. In fact, we were in Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Uh, we were we were in the Middle East uh, long before any other wrestling was. They were buying our programs uh, out of the Middle East.
0: It's funny, I always say to people that you can usually, I tell people if they haven't watched before that if you watch Continental, uh, usually whoever is the heel is the guy with the mustache. It seems <laughs> like Bob Bob turned heel, grew a mustache. I know during your various times as a heel and a baby face that it usually seemed like more often than not, you, if you were a heel, you had the mustache. Yeah. I,
1: you know, what? what's that all about? You know, I, I kind of like you. What's that all about? But, uh, you know, you know, when you when you become a heel, when you're going to wrestle as a heel, uh, you need attitude and uh, attitudes come sometimes from having that mustache. It just makes a different person out of it. And when I used to do mine, I used to like to get it down there long like a Fu Manchu, you know, just to, it is it, something about that hair on your face. Um, makes makes you a heel more than a, more than a baby face and and it adds to your 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 mentality it adds to your thinking it just adds to your persona it's it's a wonderful thing man putting a little hair on your face or, or uh, you know growing a beard uh, whatever it may be uh it it just it just goes with heels for some reason
0: and i believe you i believe uh you had a mustache in Knoxville when you started the company. And I think if I remember the story, right. That you told on the podcast that you had decided that you were going to turn babyface, and leading up to becoming a baby face, you lost a loser shaves their mustache match.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I had a match against Ron, Wright, Which I don't know. People, uh, a lot of people probably don't know who he is, but he was a t- typical man, East Tennessee character and had that country voice and that twang. And, uh, you know, and never been a baby face until I came there and I decided I was going to be a heel, and I wanted to make him a baby face because he was live close and I could count on him being there for a lot of matches with me. And, uh, he just, uh, it, it was really good. Uh, he put up his hair and he didn't have much hair. He just had a little hair around the back of his head. His top of his head was bald and, and, uh, and I put up my mustache and, uh, and I, like you said, I knew I was very shortly going to be turning babyface, so I wanted to get rid of the mustache before I made the turn. And we worked a pretty good little deal that night where where uh, uh, he he won the match, and then I wasn't going to let him cut my mustache. And probably six or eight guys came. They came to the ring one at a time, and I just beat the heck out of them, threw them over the top rope. Another one came, and I said. Finally, I beat up just about all the baby faces that were left there in the dressing room, and my brother was on the card, and my brother came down. And, you know, now I'm in a position where, you know, if he had been like a regular guy, I would have took him too, but, uh, you know, I was like, I can't do it to you. And, and then he finally made me sit down in the middle of the ring, and, oh, that was 5,000 people going crazy just watching somebody get a mustache shaved off. It was pretty crazy, but... Uh, we used to do a lot of things that uh, that weren't done in a lot of other places. That same company, we did probably, I think, the greatest angle ever worked on wrestling program on a television show uh, where we broke concrete blocks on uh, Mongolian Stomper's head and, uh, and uh, Joe Duke. Unbelievable angle. I mean, uh, people today, 50 years later, when I met down there in that area, They all want to talk about that blockbusting uh, angle, tremendous angle.
0: Yeah, it's funny that we were talking before we started about how, you know, uh, your territories weren't really well-known nationally because you really didn't – you weren't featured in the magazines very often. And for the longest time, to me, the first thing that I thought of when I heard about Knoxville – was that's the place where they burned the guy's airplane. Yeah, know, like that's yeah. like that was sort of like if you want an example of of how real fans can get about the business sometimes it's like they did not just stab people which you know you're familiar with that all too well but like yes they burned a man's airplane because he was that good a heel. It's like that's all yeah. you they like that's that to me that's southern wrestling for you.
1: That's the ultimate, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's one thing to burn a torture guy's car, you know, and that'd be bad enough, but yeah, they shoved his airplane in Harlan, Kentucky, off the top of a mountain because the airports were built on the mountaintops because uh, you couldn't land in the valley, obviously, so they just flattened off the top of a mountain to make a runway out there, and he used to fly his twin-engine plane in there, and one night, boy, the heat was too much, and and uh, he goes home. He goes back to get in his plane, and it isn't there. And he sees the smoke coming up the, from the side of the mountain. And he goes over, looks over the edge of the mountain, and there's his airplane. They shoved his plane off the mountain, burned it up.
0: Yeah, for That's people. Heat. Yeah, for people who don't know a lot about Ron Wright, um, there are some. There's a few clips from like your era in Knoxville, and then there are some. When he worked for you in USA later, but I think most people might remember him now from when he was a manager working for Jim Cornette and Smokey Mountain, where he was certainly, he was like the number one heel manager other than, than Cornette, but it was a, uh, a very different kind of manager because he was managing, uh, among other people, dirty white boy and Brian Lee and a couple other people. But at the time he was in a wheelchair uh and well we thought he was in a wheelchair but uh yeah one of the one of the better angles they ever did in smoky mountain was like it It was probably at least a year or 18 months that ron wright had been in the wheelchair and then finally during a match he got up out of the wheelchair to i think to help dirty white boy win the title and people you know it was like you know th- that's the kind of commitment to an angle that you know we don't see anymore. But but there's definitely plenty of Smoky Mountain Ron Wright for people to check out if they've never seen him before.
1: Yeah, he's a he is a fantastic character. I mean, uh, he was a fantastic character and a great guy also. But uh and and it got so much heat there in his lifetime. Uh, he had a scar on his back. Uh, from being cut in Greenville, Tennessee, from somebody behind cut him, that uh, started at the bottom of his neck and it went all the way uh, below his tights. Uh, you know, unbelievable uh, scar. Just, uh, you know, survived no telling how many stabbings and everything else. Uh, just a, a a perfect heel. Just a perfect heel. I, I loved it. I loved to do his imitation of him because his voice was so good and, and I used to fly with him in that plane that they pushed off the mountain, and boy, I had some harrowing experiences in that plane with him and his brother. We had a brother named Donnie. It was Ron and Don, and uh, boy, they they were boy. It was just as it was just as uh, wild with them being in the airplane as it was being in the ring with them. They were just absolutely off the charts.
0: I was going to say, I think Ron Wright may be in the top five of people, uh, in the wrestling business that people love doing impressions of. I think, well, I think Ron Wright, Jim Barnett and Dusty are probably the people that people who have been in the business for a long time. I think everybody has an impression of them to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. I love doing him. And, and I, anybody that likes to do impressions, you know, he's pretty unique character. Uh, we had a deal one time, this was crazy, uh, and, and this was in Southeastern, in Knoxville. We had a, uh, a contest for people to send in something of, for uh, anybody they wanted to, a replica, make something of your own that, uh, that epitomizes one of the wrestlers. You know, baby face, heel, it didn't make any difference. We ran that contest for about two months, and a guy from somewhere in North Carolina He made the most beautiful rattlesnake. He carved out a hand carved out of a stump of a tree, a rattlesnake, and the head had Ron Wright's face on it, and he had Ron Wright's tongue coming out of the snake's mouth, uh, and he he called it uh, the the Ron Riddlesnake rather than rattlesnake, rattlesnake instead of rattlesnake. I mean, uh, that dude won the contest the first time I saw that. When he came in the studio, I was like, "Wow, here's the winner, man!" But uh, people were really, really interesting back in uh, back in that Knoxville era in the '70s.
0: That's great. Uh, before we go, the one thing I did want to talk about uh, is your other career besides wrestling, and that was being an owner in hockey. And I think we had talked uh, at some point in the past that I had mentioned that uh, when I was in Indiana. I covered the, the minor league team there, the one in Indianapolis, and I probably, without realizing it, covered your team in Cincinnati a couple times when they came because I, I believe they were in the same league at the time. But uh, how, did, how did you end up transitioning from wrestling to hockey, and how did you end up, as somebody from the South who probably was not exposed to hockey very much, um, how did that all come about?
1: Well, I'd never been to a live hockey game. Uh, Louisville team was in the East Coast. That was the league that we were in in Cincinnati. Uh, Nashville was in that league. Uh, Greensboro was in that league. Uh, It was probably uh, at the point when Louisville was in there, there was probably only about eight or ten teams in that league. And uh, so we went to Nashville. But uh, we had a team in Knoxville. And uh, I had a partner, a wrestling partner, that... I'd gotten out of wrestling and was basically retired. And he said, "Ron, you need to go and see one of these hockey games." So we went to watch one, and and uh, it was nothing happening to me. It was like, "Wow, this is pretty boring." And then the second period, they dropped the gloves and they had a fight, and everybody in the building stood up. And and I said, "Boy, I can identify with that part of it." Yeah, you know. So we end up getting a team. We put it into Nashville. Uh, everybody expected that we would fail. I mean, there weren't drawing big crowds in that league. There were only four teams when we got in. The uh, the, the franchise fee was $25,000. That's all it cost us to get our Nashville team. And uh, they were averaging maybe 1000 thousand fifteen hundred 1500 a game. And uh, so we went to Nashville and and we we decided we were going to bring hockey to wrestling is what we really did we you know hockey had this horrible introduction uh you know wrestling we were we were back in the those even those days where we were using that music and you know uh, uh spotlights uh, everything we could to really get them up for the big, before the match started and the hockey game was just anything but that you know skaters just skate out no introduction, skate around in circles and then the game starts. So, you know, we developed the first ever in-game uh, introduction. Uh, in fact, I think it was maybe, and, and, you know, and I'm pretty sure that this is the case, it was the first ever done. The Chicago Bulls came down and watched it, and they sent people back, and that's where they got the, their introduction when Michael Jordan came there. But uh, we started it in Nashville. And uh, they said, you know, y'all going to fail because they'd had hockey there 10 years earlier and they never drew 500 people. They said, you're going to fail. And the opening night, we drew 6,000 people. We drew uh, three times more than any hockey team had ever drawn in that league in one in the first night. And then so next year we went to Cincinnati and and we did the same thing there, except we changed the music and we had the spotlight. We. And In Nashville, we did bad to the bone and introduced our team. It had never been done. Did stuff in hockey had never been done. And then went to Cincinnati, did the same thing. Except in Cincinnati, we were drawing 10,000 a game. It was like we we drew more than four NHL teams in the minor leagues. They had never seen crowds like that in minor league hockey. And uh, just to change the sport, basically change the sport, everybody started to do it. Two years later, everybody in the league was doing it. Now everybody in sports does it, just about. Basketball, hockey, all of them, big time, all the way to the NHL, the, the, you know, major league. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just, it's become, uh, it's become part of the game anymore.
0: It's funny, too, because probably of all the major North American sports, hockey, especially, you know, still into the 80s, was very conservative, small-c conservative, you know, very Canadian, very sort of buttoned down. And so I can only imagine that the people in hockey were probably like, one, they probably said, you know, are you going to turn this into, like, the real-life version of Slapshot? You know, you're going to have the Hanson brothers playing for your team. And I'm sure there's probably some people who are like, is this guy, this guy in wrestling, is he going to – is he going to be on the level, you know, or the, you know, is our sport going to be a shoot or is he going to try and work our sport? Yeah.
1: It, you know, it, I got a very rude introduction into the sport. You know, once I got to talking to him about warning a team, you know, the first question was, you're not going to have a goon coach and you're not going to have a goon team are you know, and I said, no, I don't know anything about hockey. So I wouldn't know the difference between a goon team and a, and a goon coach and one that isn't. And, uh, so the first night we played in Nashville, we had the opening, uh, and uh, we kept, cut the lights out. There were two guys from the NHL that came, one from out of, uh, out of Canada and one from, I think, from the Blackhawks of Chicago. They just came down to see what the wrestler was going to do with his hockey team. And I think, first of all, they had to be blown away by 6,000 people. They they had to be like, wow, how in the heck did they do this? And then the, we cut the lights, and we played bad to the bone. Uh, we put the spotlight on our team. Uh, it was an unbelievable introduction. Everybody in that building was on their feet. And uh, as soon as the first period was over, I went back to my office, and the two guys from the NHL came into my office and they were, say, they, they were mad. They were really mad. They were like, who do you think you are? You know, I mean, what are you doing to hockey? And I said, I'm turning people on, man. I said, you know, what did you think out there? I said, uh, the, the, how many people did you see sitting down when that introduction was going on tonight? And they were saying, that was horrible. You can't do that in hockey. You're right. We're very, very conservative. And I said, man, I said, I own this team. I probably shouldn't have, but I said, I own this team, guys. I said, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to entertain people because we're down south. They don't know a damn thing about hockey, but I said, I'm going to entertain the hell out of them and get them in here every week. And then two months from now, you come back and you'll have hockey fans here. And uh, you know, so they, they they walked out of there a little bit angry with me, but uh, uh, we did things uh, did things totally different than anybody else. And then we got copied by everybody.
0: Honestly, I think you probably were drawing more fans on a le- on a level lower than when I cut co- when I covered the team in Indianapolis. Um, you know, and they were a fairly decent team. They made the playoffs like once or twice, but you know, they were we were in the old fairgrounds in Indianapolis, and which was like a barn of a building that, you know, usually you only got a few thousand people, and then I think occasionally. They would run downtown in Market Square where the Pacers played, and even then, you know, it's not like they sold out or anything. It's like, you know, hockey was certainly an afterthought in Indiana then. But you know, you know, hearing all the stuff that you guys did, you know, it must have been just great fun.
1: Oh yeah, yeah we made it. Fans fans loved it. I mean, and we did everything. We didn't have. We did stuff between periods, you know, when everybody sits on their hands at a hockey game and they all go have a Coke, they didn't go to Coke. They didn't go by concession because we were doing these dash for cash deals. Uh, We put $100,000 in in real money on the ice between the blue lines and and bring a Wells Fargo truck in on the ice and, and drive them all around and then have open the back door and have guys get out with shotguns and take the money out, I mean... We did outrageous, outrageous things. There was nobody we did in Nashville. We had a Garth Brooks night, and we had Garth Brooks on the ice, and he picked the winner. Garth Brooks look-alike night, and they they had all these cowboys showed up looking in Garth Brooks outfit, and they had a Garth Brooks actually there. You know, we we really we really did a good job of of. Uh, taking that game and and taking it over the top. I mean, we didn't just provide them with a hockey game. We entertained the heck out of those people.
0: Well, it's certainly probably safe to say that Nashville would not be the success that they are now probably without the foundation that you guys built 20 years ago.
1: That's correct, and they give us credit for that, oddly enough. They they, they tell the people whose names, the Nashville Knights and the the wrestler, Ron Fuller, and, you know, when they talk about it, They give us credit for for being the ones that turn the corner. We made Nashville a hockey town, no doubt about it.
0: That's great. Ron, I want to thank you so much for doing the show today. Um, You know, as we've said, Bruce is available from Amazon or from your website at Tnstud.com where they can get an autographed picture they can also get uh, you know your weekly podcast on your site or from wherever podcasts are you have your super stud cast uh, on patreon where um, you know you do a deep dive you know 2 hour and a half shows every month on a subject you just did memphis uh, this past month where you had jerry lawler on one show and we're talking about the history of memphis wrestling on the other including And I don't think I had heard this story before about how uh, your dad, Buddy, used to shoot with Elvis in the barn on your farm.
1: Yeah, 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 wrestling was huge there. My dad went there, and that town was dead, and made a huge wrestling city out of Memphis within two years. And uh, Elvis was a big, huge fan. He'd come to the Ellis Auditorium and stand in the back and, and uh sneak out when the last match was over and he used to come to our farm and we had a wrestling ring in our barn we had a bunch of horses and he would work out with my dad i i know elvis <laughs> that is as a 10 year old kid you know I, elvis would come every once in a while and bring his whole troop a couple of limos and and uh hang out and do a little wrestling man in our barn and pretty amazing
0: that's great um and you're on you're on Twitter and Facebook uh, at Ron Fuller Welch. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before you go?
1: No, uh, I think you pretty well covered it. Uh, I mean, uh, the the cast that I do is it's actually three hours. It's it's in two parts, like you said, about an hour and a half each. And and I've done everybody, man. I mean, uh, I've done Terry Funk and Stan Hansen and Andre. Uh, I mean, uh, just my stories about Andre, Ron Wright. We talked about Ron Wright. There's a great one well with ron Wright uh, three hours and tremendous stories and uh, so yeah, I think it all you know um uh, we do i'm pretty well uh, a podcaster man uh, kind of like you and and uh doing studcast every week and it and I tell my family's life story started with uh, in two thousand and nineteen twenty with my granddad and we're right now in nineteen seventy six as you were saying so um uh, just uh, listen in and uh, you know. I just uh I love the sport. Uh, I come from the oldest wrestling family in the world and the largest in the world. and uh, you know just uh, and I've done it all, <laughs> every piece of it so so uh, people get an education when they listen to my shows.
0: I'll say, and it's not just necessarily always about wrestling. I mean I think some of the some of the more fun shows that you've done, it's been a while, but when you talked about your college basketball career, uh, including playing against Artis Gilmore when he was at Jacksonville and you were at Miami. It's, it's, right. you know, it's, it's, it's funny how many things you've intersected with over your life in your career. Like people, I think people may not have necessarily expected you to, you know, have a connection with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've done a little bit of everything. I've, I've had a tremendous life. Thank the good Lord. You've been really good to me. And, uh, and I'm still healthy, and uh, I got a few more years in me. I have to. I have to get finished with the stud cast. Like I said, that may take another six years, uh, uh, 50 episodes, another 300 episodes or so. So, uh, But, uh, yeah, it's been great, Mark. I really appreciate being on with you, man. And, uh, you know, uh, I thank you. Uh, I know you've reviewed the book, and I really appreciate what kind words you had to say about it and and you know, I think uh, hopefully people will uh, will give it a try. I think when they read that book, they're going to end up going at the end of it. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's a heck of a story. <laughs> I should <laughs> you
0: know. I should I should also mention before we go, since we're talking about the studcast, that you're doing a special episode of the studcast this week. You're breaking the continuity to do uh, an episode about Bob. You know, we talked about Bob earlier, but uh, I think you said you're going to do an episode with. You and your brother and Jimmy and Roy, I think I think you said yeah. that was the plan.
1: Yeah, yeah. going to do uh, one with the kind of the Welch and the Fuller family, uh, our tribute to the Armstrongs, to Bob Armstrong and his sons. And, yeah, uh, he, he, Bob was so – he meant so much to me. I just uh, – it's got to happen. I, 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 I want to talk about him, but I don't want people to ever forget him. And I don't think they ever will. Those that knew him will never forget him.
0: That's great, and people can look for that uh, as we, you know, this will go up on Monday night. That will be this week's uh, studcast on Wednesday. So that's definitely something people f- should look forward to. Uh, thanks, Ron, again for your time. I hope we can have you back at some point in the future because there's certainly a lot more stuff that I would love to talk to you about. I know I'm one of those people that, you know, every week on either on Twitter or Facebook, there's usually something from a studcast that – that I want to ask you about, whether it's, you know, people you know or certain angles. So I would definitely love for you to come back at some point.
1: Well, I'd be glad to, Mark, and uh, thank you very much for having me on. And uh, I enjoy it. I always enjoy talking. Talking, uh, this is a business in a way. You know, it's a good business. It's it's a fun thing. You know, for me, uh, it gives me an opportunity to tell stories, and I, and I got a few of them.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Ron. And we will talk to everybody next time.